thank you for joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Jacob Turner, a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers. Today's episode is a recording of an in-person event on AI and the future of litigation that we hosted in June 2023. The panel discussion was the first in our Fountain Court Academy series, a programme of events which are conceived, hosted and managed by juniors at Fountain Court Chambers in response to client demand. The events range from large seminars like the one in June through to small sessions focusing on specific practice areas. This first event focused on the use of AI in dispute resolution, both now and in the future, a topic which clearly has broad appeal and is of interest to most, if not all, legal practitioners. We were delighted to be joined by a fantastic panel of speakers that allowed for a variety of viewpoints across the legal and regulatory spectrum. You'll hear me introduce the speakers in the episode itself, so I won't repeat that now. But to summarise, I was joined by Sir Marcus Smith, a judge in the High Court Chancery Division and chair of the Competition Appeal Tribunal, Sana Karagani, the former head of the UK Government Office for AI, Andrew Denny, partner at Allen and Overy, and Patricia Shaw, founder and CEO of Beyond Reach Consulting. During the session, we spoke about the definition of AI, its benefits and potential drawbacks, and future uses of the technology. We also heard about Alan and Overy's experience of the technology in practice and views from the bench about how AI should and perhaps should not be used in the course of litigation. Our panel also looked at the regulation of AI in the UK and how this compares to global equivalent regimes. I hope you enjoy the episode. Good evening, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us at this inaugural Fountain Court Academy event. The Fountain Court Academy is an umbrella term for a series of events hosted by junior members of chambers, ranging from seminars like this one to smaller discussions on specific topics. The first event this evening focuses on the use of AI in dispute resolution, both now and in the future. In terms of introductions, I'm Jacob Turner. I've been at Fountain Court since 2017, and I have a practice which involves technology and AI. I'm delighted that we're joined this evening by an incredibly eminent panel of speakers across the legal and AI regulation worlds. And I'm going to try to be fairly brief in terms of their introductions in order to maximise the time that they have to speak. Starting from my right, uh, Sir Marcus Smith was appointed Queen's Counsel in 2010. He was appointed as a chair at the Competition Appeal Tribunal in 2009. And in 2017, he was appointed to the High Court Chancery Division. In recent years, Sir Marcus has presided over some of the most significant cases in the UK involving algorithms and AI. That included giving the first instance judgment in the AI inventor case recently heard in the UK Supreme Court, and he's also given a series of important decisions relating to the use of statistics to prove parts of parties' cases. Sana Karagani, to my left, was until earlier this year the head of the Office for AI within the UK government. She has over 20 years of experience in technology and business across the public and private sectors, She's now a professor of practice at KCL and is one of the most sought-after commentators and speakers on AI uh, regulation in the world. Andrew Denny, on the far left of the stage, is a partner in the litigation department at A&O. He is head of the the firm's UK public law practice and also co-head of the global business and human rights practice. And particularly significantly for the topic this evening, he has been instrumental in the firm's adoption and use of the industry-leading legal AI software, Harvey, which we hope to hear more about later on. Finally, Trish Shaw is the founder and CEO of Beyond Reach Consulting, a firm which supports organizations in the delivery of ethics by design across the whole AI lifecycle. Trish also has over 20 years' experience in providing legal, regulatory, government affairs, and risk management advice in the data, 
tech and financial services sectors. So turning to tonight's subject matter, AI is one of those terms that most people broadly understand, but at the same time lacks a shared definition. So I'll start off with an easy question. Trish, could you please tell us what is AI? That's really interesting. You you mentioned it being easy. It wasn't easy for the EU in how they wanted to define AI for the AI Act. And I think there's a lot of pomp and uh, ceremony over AI as well. But in terms of a definition that I think is the go-to one, and we've seen recently more adopted by the EU AI Act in its latest iteration prior to the, the trilogue process, uh, has been the, the OECD's definition, which is looking about how this technology, a series of algorithms, an algorithmic intelligence system that impacts its environment around it and um, has some level of autonomy about it as well. So that that's kind of the key crux of AI that differentiates it from your bog standard static software that we've seen and known and perhaps loved over the, the many years prior to that. So that that's where it would be the start of a 10. We're obviously seeing that this is a technology and in the definition of that technology, we've seen the EU blend into that, the idea of risk. So how risky is this AI system, this definition of AI that's causing a risk and an outcome? So I would say it's a software, it's an artificial intelligence system that can influence the situation and an environment that has a high propensity of autonomy, a high level of autonomy, and has a sense of riskiness about it. Picking up from your discussion just now of risk, could you expand a bit on that by talking about first, some of the main advantages, some of the main powers that AI as a distinct technology has, but also some of the risks, some of the things that we need to be concerned about. So AI is essentially a tool and a weapon, to coin a phrase from Brad Smith, bless him. And, you know, it can be used from some fantastic work. We've, we've seen AI image recognition in, in the realm of healthcare you know, for predict, predict breast, predict prostate. There's a variety of different abilities for it to recognise images in a way that's much faster than human cognition and would uh, drive efficiencies and be able to tr enable at least the diagnostics of many people faster than the human could. So there's lots of opportunities there, you know, in, in kind of calculations of, of risk, I suppose, and propensity for people to potentially pay or to uh, default on a loan and the likes. There are opportunities there for AI to be used in such a way that would help people to manage their money better, so perhaps not put themselves into harm's way um, of oh, getting themselves over-indebted. So there's still positives in those kind of two spheres, I'd say, as well. Plenty of opportunities, as we're seeing with certain elements of generative AI uh, in, in the ability to drive content and make content available quicker, faster. But then there's the, the challenge with all of this of, in terms of all of these things, you know, how often or how well are we overseeing this? How uh, well and often are we uh, triangulating the information that surrounds this in terms of both the image and how correct and accurate it is, or in terms of the scoring to do with risk analysis of, of credit, for example, and, and loan applications, you know, how, how frequent is that or, or correct and accurate is that? And then ultimately in the, the large language models piece with generative AI, you know, we start to potentially go into more stickier areas of legal risks in terms of IP or other challenges around its content uh, in terms of defamation risk or P other PR risk, or indeed, you know, going into the depths of it, you know, how was it trained? Why was it trained? And why is it churning out information the way it is? And could that indeed be biased as could any other AI system application? I'm just using generative AI as an example there. And so the, the challenge is we've got that from a kind of legal bit, but then what is that doing for us and what is that doing that to us as a society and as a, as a collective of people groups? And therefore, we then start to think about, you know, some of the ethical risks and ethical challenges that come around around our accountability, transparency, going into the depths of privacy, not just data protection and, and kind of the wider human rights of privacy. But, you know, how much is too much to be known about an individual or group of individuals? And then in terms of then the algorithmic bias, which I've already mentioned as well. So there's there's other risks that sit beneath that that can have impacts on well-being, dignity, socioeconomic circumstances. They can divide, as we've seen in, in past recent years, of how AI has been played to change human autonomy and have potential to impact um, people's decision making. So there's a lot of wider risk beyond pure legal. In the past six months, we've seen an explosion in interests 
and also uptake and use of AI, precipitated in large part by ChatGPT from OpenAI and its successor, GPT-4, as well as a host of many other programs like Midjourney, which does pictures. But alongside these more general purpose AI programs, there is now increasingly a suite of specific programs of AI that are designed for particular applications. And these have been around for a long time, but they're becoming increasingly powerful. And that includes in legal services. So for my next question, Andrew, as an early adopter of this technology as regards legal services, or and in particular, as regards the legal reasoning aspects for which AI can be used, can you tell us about A&O's experience in terms of the development and use of Harvey? Yeah. <clears throat> so we have to go back. It is remarkable how much things have changed in the last six months and how widespread it's become. But if you go back just before then, at that point, that was the point when we first came across Harvey. It's a organization, a company that's part owned by OpenAI, who of course are behind ChatGPT. And it is effectively a legally tuned GPT product. So it is tuned on legal data. It is designed to be able to interrogate material from a legal perspective and address things in a legal way. Now, we're all, I think, slightly more used to how powerful these tools are now. But I do remember when I was first um, showing it, I think it was over six months ago, and it's remarkable. The reaction is more or less the same from everybody. It starts off with silence. Then it moves to expletives, and then you start getting very, very excited about the potential for this. And we recognized that this was going to be game-changing, and we wanted to get it in as early as possible. So we were, I think, the uh, Harvey's first law firm customer, at least first law, law firm customer based in the UK. And we started by rolling it out to a select group uh, with the idea of just testing it, seeing its capabilities, and developing use cases. And it was a very open process. We didn't have set ideas on how we wanted to use it. We could see loads of potential. But we thought the best idea was to, to roll it out to the people, to fairness, and just get them to try it and see what they came up with. And as a result, I mean, the one that's probably most well-known, perhaps not for the best reasons, is the use of Harvey as a research tool. It is a very effective research tool, provided you know its limitations, provided you're aware that it hallucinates and will make stuff up, um, which was brought home to me when it cited back to me two of my own cases at me and got them completely wrong. But it is on the research side, provided you recognize it's a starting point, it, it can be an incredibly useful starting point. For that problem, which so often we get, which you just don't know what the way into. And, you know, you can use all the keyword searching you want on Westlaw or whatever. It will not turn up the answer. And that's where it can be incredibly powerful. But what it also does, of course, is does the drafting for you when it, when, when it, when it spits it back. And, you know, Westlaw is not going to draft your memo for you. Whereas Harvey will. Now, and the drafting is remarkably good. In fact, what um, some of our continental colleagues have done is use Harvey. They'll just say, right, here's this rather badly structured email of advice that um, I've been given. Could you redraft it for me in a business-like style, please? And Harvey will do it. And that's particularly useful when you're dealing with um, you know, a trainee whose uh, English may be a second language, for example, that, you know, it's particularly useful to all of us, quite frankly. One of the most powerful uses is contract drafting. And this is where you can actually, we're looking at using Harvey, pointing at it. it the, more, the more fixed set of data you point at it, the, 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 the more accurate it will be. And if you can, for example, point it at a set of um, precedents, contract precedents, and you say, okay, based on that set of precedents, I want a clause, I don't know, a, an event of default clause with a three-day grace period. And you can just put it in the, the, and it'll pull out that clause. Or you make this clause more borrower-friendly, and it'll do it, which is quite remarkable. 
And one of the more interesting ones from a dispute resolution point of view, which we've found it's very good, is as a sparring partner, you know, give me five arguments as to why legal professional privilege shouldn't apply in this situation. Or this is what my opponent has said in the submissions, you know, what would be your response? And it again is that's because that doesn't, that largely relies on logic. And um, you, so you're not, you know, it, it, it might cite cases back at you. You can always check those, but you can immediately, it will come up with things you haven't thought of, which is extraordinarily helpful. So we're incredibly excited about it. Obviously, you've got to tread very carefully. And it's got to be very carefully controlled, as a certain couple of lawyers in the Southern District of New York have discovered. <laughs> but yeah, it's been remarkable. So you've spoken a bit about some of the challenges and the hallucinations as being issues. Those are the technical problems. Have you found that there have been any challenges culturally in terms of the uptake within your firm and perhaps any pushback from clients with respect to your use of the technology? I don't think there's been any significant cultural issues with the uptake. I think by and large, people have been very excited. You know, naturally, as with any new technology, there's con- people think, and, you know, we all think, oh, it's coming for our jobs. And I just think it's, th- th- that is far too early to make that sort of, those sorts of conclusions. You know, you just need to look back at other big technological changes along the way and which have not resulted in major you know, job losses. And, you know, take e-disclosure, for example. All that happened with e-disclosure when we had the ability to search electronically is that the, the data set just got larger. So we ended up with the same amount of work somehow. But I think what it'll do is enable us just to work smarter and faster. Clients, obviously, you know, naturally in this day and age, clients are concerned about their data. You know, is their data secure? You're using Harvey on my data. Is, is it going to be secure? And that that's obviously something we need to look very carefully at. But I think clients are, by and large, in terms of our use of Harvey, that, that they're incredibly excited to go on the journey with us. I think at the moment, though, clients are also worried about their own employees' use of things like ChatGPT and what the implications might be of that. AI is not just a tool to improve efficiencies within law firms. I think we're also increasingly seeing it being used as a tool to assist in winning cases. And certainly I've seen two cases, one criminal, one civil, where parties have sought to use algorithms in order to persuade the court that they are correct. Turning now from practitioners to the bench, so Marcus, in the scenarios that I've just mentioned, and, and I should say these cases are no longer live, so you don't need to be concerned about commenting on existing mm-hmm. cases, where parties are seeking to use algorithms to prove parts of the case, do you consider there to be a distinction between what Trish was describing as traditional automated technology, which with a given input will always have the same output, and machine learning-based autonomous technology, which can come to conclusions, which can arrive at outputs that weren't put into it by humans? Well, I think it's very important we're clear what we mean by autonomy. I want to start not so much by disagreeing with the definition of AI that we've been discussing, but by suggesting that purposes of litigation and the management of litigation is actually not a helpful distinction to draw. I think you're absolutely right. The line that we need to draw lies between intelligent tools and autonomous actors in the litigation process. And that line, I think, is quite fundamental to the regulation of AI, as I must continue to refer to it. It's relevant to the regulation of AI generally, where too often the control of that AI is aimed at the human controller rather than the control of the autonomous machine itself. Let me explain what I mean by that by reference to the litigation process itself. Now, the business of property courts and the Composition Appeal Tribunal, where I preside, quite regularly have deployed before them experts who use, let us say, regression analyses in support of or in attack on certain points. And almost always, those calculations will be done by machine. And there are all kinds of standard forms of software that are used rather like Word and Excel, except for nerds. And none of this particularly worries 
the judge. But that's because the expert intermediates between the tool and the judge. Now, the expert may very well use all kinds of AI in support of their function, including autonomous AI, AI that isn't predictable in terms of its outputs. But unless its use can be explained and all conclusions justified by the expert in the witness box, the expert's evidence will be undermined, almost certainly fatally. And bear in mind that there will, in that scenario, be no evidence other than that, the expert. So the use of intelligent tools is not, to my mind, a problem at all. But let's suppose an autonomous machine doing disclosure. Let's say you go through an initial process of education, and then the machine produces a complete disclosure list, including relevant documents, irrelevant documents, and privileged documents, without further human intervention. Now, I know that any responsible litigator would want to second guess and audit the process and do spot checks, a staged process, all of these things. But I don't think that sort of process actually removes the basic concern. So I'm going to disregard that kind of human eyeballing of an autonomous process. The basic issue is satisfying the court in this case that the process has been properly carried out. Now, the present position is that there's always a responsible solicitor to whom the court can direct questions, requiring as necessary a witness statement to explain what has happened. But I don't think I would be happy, and I don't think my colleagues would be happy, with an audit that could not explain with precision how the process worked, which is not kept with a very sophisticated IT program that we're talking about now, which is doing the work itself. So we need, I think, to evolve and to evolve pretty quickly a process of machine accountability that is divorced from human accountability. And I say that as much to liberate AI as to control it. So what I would like to see is very serious thought being given to a kind of encoding of law where you have in a machine-readable form a code which sets out what the rules are on, let us say, disclosure. And then I would want the machine to refer up to that, take the rule and apply it. So what you get is a kind of rule of law for machines. Now, there are all kinds of problems with that. Encoding law is in itself a very, very difficult thing to do. I have serious doubts as to whether machines can actually understand rules in the first place. That's a more philosophical and difficult question. But unless we crack these, I don't think AI in courts have a future at all, because we will always want to be able to explain why it is we have reached our decision. And judges do not like black boxes. I'm not prepared to entertain in my courtroom a situation where someone told me saying, you know, the computer said the answer is X. And I copy that out and say, you know, the computer by the expert told me the answer is X. Well, it's not going to happen. I've got to say, in a manner that an intelligent layperson with a high boredom threshold to read under my judgments can get through and realize getting from A to B, that's how the judge did it. I may disagree with the outcome. I may disagree with the reasoning process. But at least I understand how that outcome was reached. And that's essential, not just for proper outcomes, for correct outcomes. It's essential for public confidence in justice. And that, I think, is the thing that we are missing at the moment. It's very, very hard. But I don't have a problem with AI being used, as I say, as tools. But it's the AI as the non-tool, as the autonomous actor. That's what's coming down the road. And that is what we are, at the moment, I think, just completely not understanding in terms of regulation. There's a huge amount to unpack there, but I was really interested in your idea of having some form of a computer program, if I've understood this correctly, to check the effectiveness or the veracity of outputs of computer programs which are used by the parties. Does that start at some point to look a bit like a robot judge, to massively oversimplify things? Or do you envisage the computer program having some form of other subsidiary role where the, the judge is still imposing their view on top of what the computer program has said? Well, I, I'm envisaging not so much a computerized judge as a um, computerized 
legislature. So let's take a networked system of cars where they're all driving themselves and actually they're all servicing themselves. Uh, so they're toddling off once a year for their battery checking MOT. Now, what I would like to see is an encoding of the rules regarding the um, supervision of machines to ensure that they are serviced once a year. Uh, so it wouldn't be beyond the wit of man to encode a system where the will of the legislature is incorporated in machine-readable form. Now, that, I suspect, might be tricky, but not impossible. What I think is really tricky is ensuring that the machine, the car being controlled by the computer, actually understands what the rule means. Now, you see, if I take my car to the MOT in, let us say, uh, June of one year, I'm not going to worry about next year's MOT until May. Because, you know, I know that I've got time to drive the car and get the MOT later on. The computer's going to be calculating the risks the moment it's had its MOT on the 1st of June. And it'll be thinking, what are the risks of my not actually being able to get back for next year's MOT? And they'll be saying, you know, there's a finite risk that I may not be able to get to a garage. And I reckon there's a very real concrete risk of the car never leaving the garage forecourt. It'll have an MOT on day one and say, I need an MOT next year. What's going to happen? What's going to happen if, you know, all these possibilities occur to stop me coming back when I have to? And so this notion of risk analysis, compliance, these things are deeply profound. They're embedded in human beings. I mean, you had a good laugh at my example, but it's true, isn't it? We see risks in a manner that is entirely different to the way a machine does. And unless we are beginning to think, how do we ensure that we capture proper compliance with rules, then there's no point in encoding them because they just won't work. So let's think about encoding, but let's think much more about machine philosophy in terms of how they work. And no, I don't think the judge will be replaced. I don't think the legislature will be replaced. I think the decisions that judges make and the rules that legislatures enact will be in different form. But I would expect in any legal code, judicial decisions on that code to be incorporated in it in exactly the same way as anything else is. So if you have a, um, you know, a dispute as you will have about what is or what is not a proper MOT and that comes to litigation, well, judge will decide it. That'll be fed in encoded in its own way. So I'm not seeing a replacement of anything. I'm seeing an evolution to enable AI to become what, in its true sense, it ought to be, which is an autonomous actor. And that is both the goal, I think, and the risk. And what disappoints me about the discussion so far in AI is we're talking about, oh, the human custodian will sort this out. Well, fine, but all you're talking then is about intelligent tools. And frankly, that's not a problem I have in terms of regulation. That's, that's easy. Jacob, can I yes, take please. this opportunity? Because disclosure is discovery. The use of AI in that context is well, not quite the holy grail. But if we could crack that, it could significantly reduce the costs of litigation. But I've had discussions just on this very point about the forensic the ability to verify its decisions forensically. And that is the obstacle at the moment. I mean, it's, it's still going to be incredibly powerful, even from the get-go. You get chucked a whole load of documents and you can interrogate them immediately. But until we find a way to convince someone like Samarcus that the disclosure decisions that it has been made by the AI tool as to what is or isn't relevant, we're, we're not going to get there. Now, unfortunately, I think that, that answer lies not with the lawyers, but with the tech scientists as to how, how you get that verifiability. And that perhaps is an excellent juncture to bring in Sana, who obviously has the perspective of a regulator and someone who has been involved from the tech side in these things. So Sana, could I ask you, 
Where do we stand in the UK at the moment in terms of the regulation of AI? Uh, it's something that has been increasingly covered in the press in the past few months. And, and where do you see us moving towards in, in the next few years as this develops? I mean, uh, so Marcus, I really enjoyed your your comments, actually. Um, I thought they were really astute. And one of the things that we've talked about before I answer your question, Jacob, a lot is about the kind of black box nature, inability to to tell you how things have happened or how the algorithm has made the decision that it has. That is central to to kind of using AI in such a place such as law, for example, or even in um in medicine, right? And symbolic AI, which is rules-based and you can kind of follow it through like a decision tree, does allow you to do that, but it doesn't have anywhere near the the power or the kind of wow factor that you were describing with Harvey. So we sit in this kind of place where we go, either we give up the need to know, um, or at least the need to know as we traditionally think about it, or we give up the the wow factor. And I think right now that's where we are. And right now that's where the 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 kind of research is happening around transparency and and other things. But let me get to your question, um, Jacob, around UK. So the UK released a white paper on AI regulation and it opened it for consultation. The UK's approach is risk-based, but it's also sector specific with a little bit of coordination or central coordination function done either by the government or by a by a group to be yet to be decided who will offer that kind of overarching support across the regulators. So what does that mean? That means that it's application based. So AI is this blanket term which is in my opinion super useless uh, to describe what's actually happening because these are applications that run across kind of every domain in every sector and they manifest themselves very, very differently depending on which application and which sector. So what the UK has said is we will look at risky applications that will will be risk-based, but we will also be sector-specific. So as the application manifests itself in the specific sector, so for example, the FCA, will look at what regulations mean within banking and finance. But you'll have MHRA who will be looking at what those regulations mean within the health sector or medical devices. So that's very different than the EU's approach, which I think Trish will talk about in a little a little later, and also a little bit different to the US approach, which we'll talk about as well. So we've got this overarching support, which is looking at kind of standards and other things that the whole of AI will any application in AI needs. So data, principles, ethical considerations, how the the system, the algorithm is actually written. These are things that are consistent across. There will be a set of high-level principles that will then be applied specifically to each regulator. But the UK's approach is sector-specific in that way. That consultation is now closed. It closed, uh, I believe, a few days ago. Yeah, so just very recently. And now the UK has moved on to the next phase, which is there will be a response to the response. There will be a government response to to the consultation, which will come in the next six months. There will be AI regulation roadmap. The UK loves the roadmap, which will come out, which will say what the next steps are on the road or on this journey. And the work will continue alongside industry and regulators to keep moving these things forward. So within the next year, we'll also have sandboxes. And I still say we, I should say they, but there will be sandboxes and and other types of areas with, with specific guardrails for businesses and for regulators to understand how to make sense of these. And crucially, the way the UK has thought about this is, is to, to ensure that it's responsive and adaptable. And the way that the UK legislative processes are set up, which you know, all of the conversation before this, by the way, for me was was like in a different language. So I can kind of understand when people don't get tech talk. In the UK, you can adapt legislation to meet with new things. In the US, for example, they can't, not as easily. So the UK is really well placed to make these kinds of changes in an adaptable and flexible way. Um, and that puts the UK in a really good position. To, to lead some of this conversation globally. I suppose the counter argument that's sometimes made 
uh, by some commentators, is that other jurisdictions like China, like the EU, which we're going to hear about shortly, are really forging ahead right now with very advanced and very onerous AI regulation, at least some of which is going to apply to companies, multinationals operating from the UK. So is there a, a risk, is there a danger that the UK might be left behind from a regulatory perspective? Well, so I'm a massive optimist. I think you'll generally find that technologists tend to be very optimistic people. No is the short answer. The UK has a really sensible approach and an incredibly vibrant regulatory landscape. And in the words of some of our EU colleagues post-Brexit, when we weren't allowed to, to you know, sit alongside them in the high level, at a high level, talking about the high-level expert group on AI, for example, they said they would miss the sensibility that the UK brings. And that isn't something I'm saying about the UK. That is something that is said about the UK, not just by Europe, but also by the US and Canada and other countries, From both from a kind of academic research perspective, as well as from a regulatory perspective and, and practitioners and businesses, the UK leads the way in responsible and trustworthy AI. And so the work that we have done here, the things that have been set out here are still forming the basis of how other countries are approaching the way that they set the regulation. Now, some may move faster. So we saw, for example, Italy make a knee-jerk reaction to large language models and just ban GPT. That isn't going to have the desired effect. We need to have a measured approach so that we can balance benefits of these technologies and the risks. If we cool things down too much, we will have problems in other areas. But to get this right means building trust in society. And if we are showing that responsibility, safety, and approaching kind of regulations in the way that we have been is at the heart of what we do, then I think that trust will come along with it. And part of the work and in fact, one thing to kind of show that we are, we're doing that is that there is a, say, an AI safety summit that President Biden, in fact, jumped on very quickly in his meeting with the PM uh, very recently to, to say that they want the US backs England, the UK to run this summit and to bring all of the different countries from around the world together to create a sensible approach to these things. Because frankly, these technologies don't have borders. So it's great if one country is doing something, but actually what we need is a, is a coordinated approach. Now, we might take slightly different ways of doing that, and that's fine, but we do need to agree the kind of principles and guidelines and set the guardrails around these in a way that is consistent across the globe. So that's the UK perspective, and interesting to hear about the UK perhaps being a conduit between the US and other jurisdictions. The main one that we've already mentioned so far is the EU. And I wonder, Trish, if you could perhaps elaborate on where the EU stands in terms of AI regulation at the moment. So the EU's been on a journey. So this isn't something that's just suddenly landed on us, this EU AI Act. They, they started with a high-level expert group. They actually, in their efforts to make AI trustworthy, they said, we want to put people first. We want to put the fundamental rights of European Union citizens first in how we look at this technology. What does risk look like for EU citizens? And they, they kind of clearly have said, you know, what's prohibited AI in their market block, in their single market, and what's acceptable. And what's, what's acceptable mm -hmm. is in the riskiness bracket. So if it's high risk AI, these are high risk applications that they deem risky. Doesn't mean to say it gets a whole gambit of risky kinds of AI. To my point earlier on, you know, there could be legal risk, but there could be also ethical risks. It's got a, a kind of a list of about 11 or 12 kind of high risk kind of systems that don't align specifically to a regulator in our in a UK approach in terms of that regulatory approach. But it, it says that these are AI systems that we as a European Union deem to be risky and in need of guardrails. Those guardrails, it has taken, it's more from its original kind of seven key requirements, the ethical approach that they've adjusted to this piece of law that they've tried to set through their, their journey to come to this point of saying, right, we're going to manage it. This is the requirements for managing risk. This is the requirements for data governance. This is the requirements for quality assurance. This is the requirements for going through conformity assessment. 
Granted, a lot of it's marking your own homework um, in these high-risk systems, except in a very niche few cases where you get a third party coming along and doing that conformity assessment on you, which I would argue is real accountability. <laughs> and then you get stamped with the conformity or a PN stamp, and then you can be ready to go. All of this is ex ante, so it's before it goes in the market and gets made available into the European market. It's also extraterritorial, which is it's a very brave and bold approach in the sense of, you know, anything that's happening to or for our European Union citizens, it's again that people first trustworthy AI. And why are they doing it is to build trust. They want the European Union citizens who are operating with these AI systems to have confidence, then it has adoption and then it resolves. Now, granted that that choosing what risk is isn't necessarily the best approach because those risks don't always correlate with the outcomes. But for this first stab in the dark, dare I say, it's not a bad starter up for the books. I will say, however, some of the concerns that I'm seeing in the European Union amongst the various member states is that actually, you know, whilst unlike GDPR, which had that more fragmented approach to national authorities for data protection, this is looking to centralise one centralised EU AI board and that body that would oversee all of this. The challenge is it's left for the, the supervisory authorities for market surveillance in country. And that, that's going to be quite challenging, potentially poses an ongoing fragmentation in the sense of how much capacity, how much competence do they have in those individual regulators in those particular countries. Again, there's no stipulation at this time as to is that the financial regulator or financial conduct authority equivalent, or is it the medical device equivalent, or you know, who's going to oversee autonomous vehicles, although autonomous vehicles aren't on the list. You know, that's a different piece of legislation altogether. So, you know, it poses challenges still. I think what it's trying to not do is say it's trying to ascertain these risks correlate to an outcome and try not to allow there to be gaps between the regulators and the sectoral approach that I think potentially we will see. And in its latest iteration of the UAI Act, it is starting to recognise this entanglement, the fact that the AI lifecycle is incredibly complicated. Asana said it's borderless, you know, different actors, different players at various points in the AI lifecycle, different parts of the ecosystem. It's super challenging. And as they've already in the last three or so uh, since November last year to the last couple of weeks, found, you know, trying to put something that's fit for purpose for general purpose AI or foundation models, where these can appear in all those risk categories and or in any sector, you know, is going to be quite hard for them. And, and what we've seen in the latest iteration, they're trying to make a stab in the dark at it. But whether it will wash is dependent whether it how it fares in the trilogue process, which we're about to go through. At the moment, you know, it's still looking like it from a global stratosphere, like it might be, apart from the Chinese regulator that's operated recently, one of the first um, AI acts to go to market. And, and outside of actually the Canadian AI um, assessment that's required of public administrations. But yeah, so apart from those two instances. May I quickly come in? Yeah, yeah. please. So it's really, really interesting that the EU's approach, I think there is a, a worry that they will tie themselves up into knots before they're able to actually do anything. But I think the answer, as always, will lie somewhere in between, right? The risk-based approach is correct. That the totally centralized AI regulator, no, I'm fully on the fence, maybe hanging off one side. But I do think that there is something to be said for not trying to get it all right all at once, which yeah. is kind of where Europe is right now, which is there. And Canada is, is toying with the same thing, which is, you know, they're trying to create AI regulation for all of it all at once and get it all agreed and out there. Whereas actually, if you can pick out the riskiest areas of specific applications that nobody would argue with and put regulation on those now, then you're in a much, much better place. So I think the UK taking the step back and saying, right, we're going to be sector-based. We're going to have an assessment of where the biggest risks lie. And we're going to have a look at what's coming elections. And we're going to maybe address mis and disinformation first. And we're going to stamp down on that because that is an, that is an application that nobody disagrees with, right? Using DALI and various other generative mechanisms and applications with three seconds of your voice and 15 images, they can put you basically in any position, wearing any clothes in any country, saying whatever they want. I don't have to go far to create a compromised video in your mind. You know, you cannot trust your eyes, right? And those are things that nobody would argue with. Right. Whereas 
do, should we sit around and, and argue as part of a whole whether or not you know you should have a human right to a human decision or a human right to or the right to know whether or not a chatbot that you're interacting with is actually a human or a chatbot. These are important things that need to happen, but they will require much more conversation and disagreement across countries and so on. So I think there is a balance there. But interestingly, we're still talking at it almost, obviously, we've been talking about regulation at a very legal level. But interestingly, even if you put a stamp over that, that stochastic parrot of a Dali with a voice overlay, et cetera, et cetera, it looks like Trump or maybe it's one other global leader, um, ex-global leader, you know, how does that affect somebody? You know, from an empathy perspective, a cognition perspective, you can't unsee what you've seen. And so there's real challenges, even with these transparency stamping, considered low-risk AI in the UAI app. And that's what I mean. So it that isn't for me low risk, right? Yeah. Putting an ad, and they tried this already in the US, putting an ad with a fake polit like the the politician in a fake circumstance being arrested and and, and taken off with a label that said you are looking at a an AI generated image or video, doesn't matter who's gonna read. You may not read it, you may you may just in passing see it, and then that that starts a spiral effect. So for me, the the rankings. In the EU AI Act, they had to do this because there's only so much you can push in order to pass the entire thing through 28 countries. But if we are much more specific about the applications that we care about and that we we know have these adverse circumstances, then that's what we need to be pushing. And that's what we need to get right rather than trying to get the whole, trying to eat the entire elephant. That right. <laughs> I think that that question of harms brings us quite nicely to the final topic, which is uh, looking to the future. And Andrew, I'd like to ask you as a disputes lawyer, I know the many in the audience uh, are also disputes lawyers. What sort of disputes do you see arising now and in the future from our clients, from businesses, uses of AI and from the harms that might arise? Well, I mean, the, the, the first one that I think is getting a lot of people very worried and hot under the collar, I'm not an IP lawyer, but the potential for IP breaches when you're basically using incredibly powerful software, which goes out into the internet and gathers up a lot of stuff is obviously you know very high. So IP, we've already seen a couple of defamation cases. I don't know whether people have heard about, there's an American shock radio DJ who's suing OpenAI for defamation because, and I'm not quite too sure the circumstances of publication, but effectively he says it alleged he was involved in corruption of some sort or another. An Australian mayor has brought similar sorts of claims. But I think in terms of our clients' exposure, obviously IP, but just taking that idea of, you know, that the, the fact that OpenAI, GPT, makes stuff up, there's a significant risk of the you know, companies, employees using ChatGPT as a shortcut. Take an example of a you know an overworked junior analyst at an investment bank who has to produce a report on a company, and he goes to ChatGPT and says, "Well, you know, tell me five things that investors in this company should be concerned about," and then he pumps that research report out the door, which contains absolute. Fabrication, very convincing fabrication, because let's face it, it's convincing. And so there's very, very plausible. So there's risks of defamatory content. There's risks of negligent advice. There's risks of mis-selling. So, you know, there's, I think there's a wide range of, wide range of issues there. And I think what in conversations with clients at the moment, what they're trying to get their head around is to what extent do we need to ban employees from using ChatGPT in a business context? Or if we're not going to ban it, what controls do we put around it? So, yeah. And, but just picking up the, the, the deep fake, you know, fraud, you know, you can use it in an election context, but you can also use it for a very convincing fraud. And I, I wonder whether we're going to start to see a few disputes along those lines come out as well. Picking up on the prospects you raised of banning types of AI, I'd like to direct my final question to Zamarcus. And that brings us back to the legal industry. 
Are there any areas that should always remain the domain of human lawyers and indeed human judges? Well, there should, in your view at the moment, never be AI used. Well, I think when one is talking about dispute resolution, you should tier things. So you've got your very high value cases and you've got your very, very low value cases. Now, we've made a great deal of progress in the um, uh, resolution of these low value cases in that you can file your claim electronically and you can get a result fairly quickly. And that has generated an enormous amount of take up under the reform program as of today. My concern about that is that there's a huge degree of inertia. In other words, it's very easy to file your claim. We're talking, you know, two, three hundred pounds here. That sort of thing. Someone didn't service my boiler correctly, that sort of thing. And I wonder how far these cases are resolved by inertia on the part of the defendant rather than by actual fighting and resolution. So that is an area which I see as being ripe for AI processing. I personally would have no difficulty uh, in having these claims dealt with, resolved by IT, because frankly, it's better than what's going on at the moment. Uh, either you've got a situation where the dispute isn't capable of being brought because it's too low value and the barriers to resolution are too high, or it's being resolved because the barriers are too low and the inertia is on the other side. People don't respond. So there, I wouldn't lose any sleep over a complete autonomous system resolving these matters. But ultimately, it's because it's significantly better than the system we've got now. The high-end cases, well, I don't think you're ever going to get rid of the human beings because we are talking about hugely important rights. People are going to want to litigate them. Of course, they will use tools. I'm sure that is right. But at the end of the day, the human actors and the human judges will decide these rights because actually I don't think machines will ever get law, the reason that we discussed before. I think they can assist other people to get law, but I don't think they will ever be able to resolve the hard questions that come before our courts. And I don't think it matters because of the very high value cases. Well, people will want to spend the lawyers and that's fine. The problem case is the bit in between. The cases where there's a sum of money which is significant to people in the society, but where you can't spend huge amounts of money, the huge amounts of money that you have to spend to litigate a case these days. Now, what band that case falls in is very, very difficult to articulate. Every year I do a sort of mental calculation to work out uh, what would be worth an ordinary person, not mega quality, but an ordinary person litigating for. You know, what would you, what would you go to court for? And I'm assuming just a money problem. I mean, if it's crime or if it's reputation or if it's family, different things apply. I'm just talking about your, your ordinary commercial case. And, you know, a few years ago, it was probably a million. Now, well, I certainly wouldn't tell anyone to litigate for a million. Five million, maybe. Uh, but the costs are so immense that the value at risk has actually got to be very high in order to justify the risk of running a case and losing it, being liable for the other side's costs. So that's the problem area. And I do see a considerable opportunity there in terms of a chat GBT or variant of that uh, being involved in, say, settling the pleadings, in drafting a defence. Now, these are things which are not pushing out the advocates, still less pushing out the judge. It's a process of automating something and making the outcome better than what a, an expensive human being can produce in a very short period of time. In other words, you've got to say, if I give this to ChatGBT, it's better than five minutes of Jacob's time. Of course. Certainly. <laughs> no, <laughs> if never. Want, if you want 10 hours of Jacob's time, yeah. you know, that's your big case. But that's going to cost you, well, I'm not going to even try and compute what that's going to cost you, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. And very, very reasonable in the context of the big case. But in the context of the extension that hasn't been built correctly, value at risk, 80,000, someone ought to be able to litigate that. And at the moment, they can't. This is the problem that we have with the rule of law in this country. We've got a very sophisticated legal system. We've got very comprehensive rules which deal 
to the end of eternity with all sorts of problems. I mean, disclosure is one area, but we have all sorts of interesting questions where we try to resolve things to the nth degree. It doesn't work for these cases, which are, I think, the bread and butter of what lawyers ought to be around. And that, I think, is the opportunity. But I don't see it as a displacement of the lawyers. I see it as a leveraging of their abilities. So you push out the stuff that the machine can do, and you limit the involvement of the human actors to those points where they actually deliver value. And that, I think, is, I'm not sure it's anything to do with AI, actually. I think it's to do with the use of intelligent tools. I have no problem in that area with a degree of autonomy, but not as much uh, lack of concern as I do with the very low value cases where, frankly, I'll just let the statistics run because at the end of the day, getting it wrong doesn't really matter. But the middle cases, that's where I think it's at. Incredibly refreshing perspective on the situation. I think that's exactly right. And I wish there were more people like the people on this panel because then the use of these tools would help the productivity of the UK and the economy. But we do get a lot of people who worry about the edge cases specifically rather than, like you described, setting out the landscape and saying, here is where we don't mind. And that would be good. Or, or like you described with your law firm, putting the principles and the guardrails around using a tool that makes people more efficient. There's nothing wrong with that. What's interesting about what Marcus has just mentioned is about the difference between automated and autonomous. And I think there's much we can glean from automating processes. And indeed, I suspect it would have that rebound effect, as in when things become more efficient, more people will want to use it. More people will want to bring those claims, perhaps even a slightly smaller value than five million. You know, so I, I can see that driving things. I suppose then the question then is how it's codified, coming back to what we mentioned earlier on about ensuring the explainability on, on, on what's going on in the black box. But when we're using rules as code, that, that legislative piece, to make sure that we know how it's being automated, those steps of those code, and that we've scrutinised sufficiently what that code is when we've input it so that it gets the results we would otherwise have put in place. I wouldn't say the machine would ever understand, but the point being is so that we can understand rather than it for the explainability purposes. I think it's also part of the answer to this is coming for our jobs because to use that example, these would be cases that would not otherwise be brought. And, you know, you can, in in other words, we're using this uh, smarter to do more, not just for the humans to do less. So that would actually be an, a, you know, a net benefit all around. It wouldn't be less work for the lawyers. It would be the same amount, maybe even more. Quite a, a, a positive note to, uh, to end on uh, in terms of uh, <laughs> our ongoing employability. <laughs> I'd like to invite uh, the members of the audience if they have a- any questions. I've only got time for a few, but yes. Thank you so much, Jacob, and to the panel for such an interesting discussion. My question is about regulation in courts, so perhaps for Sir Marcus first. I'm aware that one of the Canadian courts, the Court of Kings Bench in Manitoba, issued a practice direction on the use of AI in submissions, requiring advocates to indicate how AI was used in submissions. And there's also a requirement by a federal judge in Texas who makes all attorneys, all litigants appearing before him, sign a certificate. These are attesting that no portion of the filing was drafted by AI, ChatGPT, Harvey, AI, Google, or that any language drafted by AI will actually be checked for accuracy using legal databases or printed reports by a human being. <laughs> and uh, the certificate actually goes on to say that these platforms are incredibly powerful and have many uses in the law, including suggesting errors in documents, anticipating questions and oral argument. But legal briefing is not one of them. And it continues to say, to explain why, because they're prone to hallucinations and bias. So I'd be interested to hear whether this sort of practice direction might be expected in our courts. Not in my court. (laughs) The reason is, I don't think it's necessary. This is an example of a human lawyer using a tool. How they use the tool is up to them. I'm not in the business of requiring them to certify how they do it, because I would like to think, and maybe this is arrogance on my part, I would like to think that if someone comes in with an incorrect submission that is just invented, I'll catch it. 
I can't add to that because that's brilliant. I am going to tackle bias though for one second. Algorithms use data to learn and the data that they learn from is what causes them to make you know, the reactions or, or come up with the answers. That data that they learn from, we have created as humans. So if there's bias inside an algorithm, it isn't inventing it. It is holding a mirror to the biases that exist in humans. So I think there is a lot that we have learned about our own biases, especially in court from these algorithms, like how judges in the US, for example, react before or after lunch in terms of the cases, whether they pass them or not. And depending on how much sleep they got or whatever, there are these kinds of things. Or there are now algorithms in the US that can predict based on who is trying the course and who is litigating and who all of those different things, what your probability of winning are. And that is specifically based on data created by humans. So any bias in that is created by us. So this is a mirror. And in fact, for me, I think there is now a lot a way of creating synthetic data, which we can, you know, create lots of diversity into and be a lot more proactive in, in helping create that data in a in a in a in a good way. But the idea of cleansing data to make it bias-free worries me to no end because now you have a person who is deciding, and I don't know appointed by whom, but they're probably a tech bro who has decided that I know what unbiased data looks like. And so that worries me a lot more than being aware that these biases exist in our world. I actually want to answer a bit of that question as well, thinking about, would it make any difference if it was made transparent? The fact that actually they've come to the table, having made a submission, utilising these intelligent tools, would that then have a biased result? Would the judge, I mean, producer Marcus, if someone came to you and said transparent, presumably transparently, that they had used an AI tool, but they corroborated what it said in it, and they felt that this was a, a good curated submission to make and founded, that it wouldn't bias your decision making by the virtue of the fact that they potentially have some skills wastage, a lack of critical thinking to put it together. <laughs> I don't see advocates operating in that way. It's not something that I recognise. I mean, we are blessed in this jurisdiction with a really rather competent group of advocates. And that is something which I think we forget about all too often. The reason our courts work the way we do in at least well-funded civil litigation is because there is a very capable cadre of lawyers out there who know the law, they know how to argue cases, and they know their responsibilities to the court. Equally, when an advocate comes into the courts, the business of property courts or the CAT or the sort of heavyweight courts in this system, they know that they're going to get some probing. And if someone comes along with a proposition which is just not quite right, the judge is going to be on it. I mean, we operate as judges at a level of not quite instinct, but I think if you take the Dworkonian Hercules, the the judge who sees a, a, a pattern in the common law generally and the legislation generally, you can see a point that doesn't fit. And you can zone in on that. And you say, right, tell me about this. That's what I do every day. I mean, 90% of a skeleton argument is complete vanilla. You just read it through and think, right, yep, no problem. It's the 10% that the case turns on where you sniff and think, this isn't right. There's a degree of overreach in the argument. And so you will immediately say, right, why are you saying this? What's the point? And I mean, I'll just end. It's a very interesting exchange, which a colleague of mine at the CAT, Anthony Newberger, who shows sort of cross-examination skills of his brother, Lord Newberger, he asked, because he was involved in a trucks overcharge case, he asked ChatGBT this question. He says, what impact did the European truck cartel have on truck prices in Europe? And the machine gives him an answer saying, oh, the overcharge is 14% it came up with. He says, well, tell me more. Where do you come from that? And it invented a quote. Well, didn't say it had invented a quote, it gave a quote. And um, so he then, knowing about the case, hang on a minute, I haven't heard of this press release. And 
I've read a fair few. So he did a little bit of digging. Then he goes back to the chat GPT and says, just tell me where this quote came from. I haven't been able to locate it. And then you get a series of groveling apologies from the machine, <laughs> uh, which read to my educated ear, just like a dishonest witness. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's uncanny because the machine doesn't answer the question, why have you put this quote in quotation marks in your answer? Why have you invented it? It just comes up with one apology after another, which is exactly what your dishonest witness does. I'm terribly sorry. You don't explain as a dishonest witness why you're sorry. You don't explain that you've invented it, but you just go into grovel mode. And that's what the machine does. And I found that really interesting because it was almost human. And it's biased. And uh, I, I think that's embedded. That's probably a, a very good note to end on. So can I ask everyone to please thank the panel in the usual way? Uh, I've certainly very much enjoyed everyone's really interesting and thought-provoking contributions. I hope the audience has as well. Thank you very much. That was the Fountain Court Academy event on AI and the future of litigation. It will certainly be interesting to see how these themes and developments play out in the coming years as AI becomes increasingly embedded into the legal profession. Once again, I'm very grateful to Sir Marcus, Sana, Andrew and Patricia for their contributions, and I hope our listeners enjoyed the discussion. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast, and keep an eye out for the next Fountain Court Academy event. Mm -hmm.